5: that shows up in your Twitter feed, or the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. On each episode, we'll bring you not only the news, but also reading chosen to shed some light on the subject at hand. I'm Sugi and I'm
3: Sugi's co-host, Whitney Terrell. So, I right, look, I never thought I'd say this, but one of the cool things about starting this podcast, this is now our fourth episode, has been the analytics. You've been looking at those?
5: Yeah, I'm a data nerd, too, and I'm excited that our listeners are really international. We've got a lot of listeners in the UK, in Canada, Australia, and we also, to my surprise, have a presence in places like France, Hong Kong, Spain, Thailand, and Germany. All right, so
3: one point, we're bringing that up because I, I, I want to remind people to review us on iTunes or Stitcher, which is how other listeners find us, but also because we don't have listeners in Russia but that country seems totally omnipresent in American news and politics these days. In our last episode, we talked about Russian-sponsored dark ads. Uh, we've talked about, and and you know, the Russians are leaking emails during the election from Hillary Clinton, the Democratic Party. We got Robert Mueller looking into
5: connections between the Trump campaign and and the Russians. And so, of course, because we're F and F, this made us think of Russian writers. So. In the second half of today's show, we're going to talk to my colleague Charlie Baxter about America's ongoing fascination with 19th century Russian literature. But first, we're going to talk to Ukrainian born writer Sana Krasikov, whose new novel, The Patriots, is set in America and in Russia during the Cold War. Sana, welcome to the show.
4: Good to be here, Sugi. Both the
5: Patriots in your 2008 story collection, one More Year, your focus on characters whose lives connect Russia and its neighbors to America. But I can't imagine that while you were writing, you could have anticipated the current news situation. And I'm just wondering what that's been like to watch and think about your book coming out in this atmosphere.
4: Yeah. So the Patriots was actually published four days after the inauguration. And, um, it was odd because my publisher had pushed it till after the election, um, thinking that it would just be a more calm time and less the, the news cycle wouldn't be quite so uh, insane. And of course it was the opposite. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I, everyone's asked me like, Oh, you couldn't have anticipated it. I have to say, honestly, I, I, I mean, I was a little surprised, but not as much as some people I actually thought Trump would have a fairly good chance of winning. Um, you know, being just kind of hearing what I do from, um, out of the Russian community. Um, but the other thing is, you know, I'd been, uh, I started the book in 2008, right. When we'd basically plunged into this worldwide economic recession and I had been, um, really delving into the the thirties when the book begins. And, um, you know, like my husband has this joke that, um, you know, if, if you look at, um, you know, a time when you had a prolonged economic crisis and you had, you know, inflamed class anxiety, racial tension, political polarization. And um, then, you know, you have a new form of media that's broadcasting all this outrage. And after all of that, basically, you get a, um, you know, a, a president who's a scion of a uh, wealthy new york family who's championing himself the um champion of the working class and then promptly develops an uncritical friendship with russia's strongman leader like we would think we were talking about today and we'd be off by about 80 years because all of this happened in some form already the polar, the political polarization the nativist rhetoric like those were really flourishing in the 30s you had people like um you who, who were basically like mastering this blend of hyperbole and humor and outrage that and then and broadcasting it through the radio. I mean, you had the most popular order at the time.
3: Was, so radio, like, stands in for what Facebook and well, Twitter have, now?
4: Yeah, totally. I mean, people talked about the dangers of the radio the way that they talked about the dangers of Facebook and
3: you as we so did last do, podcast, just to say
4: you did right, <laughs> um, and you know. You had people like Hugh, um, Senator Huey Long who ran who ran for um, for office. You had, um, you, you know,
3: Father Coughlin wasn't he? A Father leader? Coughlin
4: was the really big one, and you know, also the press kind of dismissed these people as as backwater quacks, you know. That but they were getting huge swaths of support from middle class America, right? Not necessarily just the poor and downtrodden you know, really felt like Marxist predictions were coming true. They they called it the crisis of capitalism. People were leaving America. You know, workers were returning to their home countries. People were going to Moscow like it was, you know, the new Jerusalem. If you want to talk about um, a schizophrenic relationship with Russia, I mean, we didn't even recognize Russia um, until FDR came to power. So we didn't, we, we had no diplomatic relationship with them. The press kept beating the drum against the red menace why, meanwhile, we were, we were make America was, um, brokering million dollar deals with them on a regular basis.
3: Right. And that's all important in the book. I really love those parts. Um, you know, that connection of trade, the the way you talk about trade and the way the the trade relationship between Russia and America is working at that particular time timeline. But I wanted to ask you about, um, some, some other parallels. Um, you know, I was thinking about, when I was thinking for preparing for this, I was thinking about uh, Gary Steingart's novel, Absurdistan, which came out in 2006. And he has a line in it. The Soviet Union is gone and the borders are as free and passable as they've ever been. And yet, when a Russian moves between two universes, this feeling of finality persists. The logical impossibility of a place like Russia existing alongside the civilized world of Ann Arbor, Michigan, sharing the same atmosphere with, say, Vladivostok. Um, that is very different than, than people wanting to move to Moscow, as they did in the 30s, right? I mean, you were in the U.S. then. Did you feel that way?
4: Actually, I was in Russia when I read, when I read that line. Ah. Um, yeah, my, my friend and I ordered the book so we could share it. And it's a beautiful uh, original phrase um, by Gary Steingard. What it comes down to for me is that there's this um, kind of unseemly gap between um, cause and effect that can take place. When you're in Russia, like the things that you could be punished or rewarded for don't always have a one to one concurrence. Um, I mean, which is why sometimes when you're reading or writing about Russia, it, it feels like science fiction. I mean, in fact, their most popular. uh, their most popular kind of genre is science fiction. Probably some of my favorite Russian writers like Pilevin, are science fiction writers because they just, they capture that. But, you know, there were other writers like Dostoevsky who wrote about it, this idea of this that there's no kind of one-to-one relationship between... cause and effect. The writer who's currently working, who I think really captured is, is, is um, Elena Kostuchenko. She's a um, journalist for Novaya Gazeta, and she really goes into rural Russia, and she comes up with these vignettes that almost feel like science fiction. So, you know, she had this um, really small story about this policeman um, who saw a young woman drowning in, a freezing, in freezing November water, and he dives in to save her while his superior yells at him not to disobey him and jump in. And then he saves her. And he's given a demotion and stripped of his bonus because he's left his holster and gun on the bank of the river. What's happening is that the the laws of um, the state and society aren't matching up. I think it
5: does seem like in the past year, uh, the change is on a different level. Michigan actually voted for Trump. So is that in the I don't know, is that is that a way to think about um, the state and society? I mean, I don't, I don't know what it means in Michigan, but if you're talking about I live in uh, Michigan, and that frankly broke my heart, um, Trump and much of his entourage are connected to Russia and Paul Manafort's been indicted and these kind of mini oligarch characters that Steingard satirizes in that book, um, you know, are they now in charge of the U.S. government? Do you, how, how comfortable do you feel thinking about, um, like the personality types that you're describing and that I think maybe Americans associate with, with, with Russia?
4: Are, I mean, one of your questions seems to be like, are we becoming more Russianized in our relationship? Yeah. the Yes. Yes. Um, I, I I'm not as alarmist about that as some people. I don't think so. Um, I've asked Russians about it. And the answer that I get is that, you know, when the travel ban came out and you had a, a judge, a state judge who um, declared it unconstitutional, I mean, Russians said to me that the, the minute that a judge from some province declares something that Vladimir Putin is doing illegal. We will no longer be Russia. So um, I don't. I don't think we're even close, actually. Oh, Um, good. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Also, I mean. But you know, I I think there is a particular way that we are becoming more Mm -hmm. similar, and that has to do with. um, um, Well, in the nerdy way to put it, is our lack of faith in institutions. In our, in in the more um, fun way to put it is our um, how how much more we how much more time and space we give conspiracy theories.
2: Oh, my goodness.
4: Political political discourse. Um,
3: Well, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, that's one of the things that so you may say that, uh, you know, the, the larger government in terms of the court system is working, but our president and Vladimir Putin are buddies, at least in Trump's mind. You know, they just met over the weekend. They were wearing well, the same clothes, you know. I,
4: know, Trump did, I mean, you know, I, I'll take a little bit of issue that. OK, good. I don't, think, I don't think Trump did give Russians what they wanted, which is if not the lifting of sanctions, then at least um, encouraging uh, Europe to lift the sanctions. I'm I, i, I I'm not sure. Um, look, I, I'm like the last person who wants to give Trump too much credit, but I, I don't think he actually played into um, the snare, if, the, if there was one, uh, so much. But I do think there is a, a um, an affinity between the two men. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting because so, so I'm just going to go back to this um, FDR-Stalin comparison for a minute because I think it, there's two things about it that, that are, are useful to think about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a really brief summary of the book is that it's basically about a group of Americans who get um,
3: the Patriots you're talking about
4: right, now. Patriots. It's about a group of Americans who end up in Russia, and then the the path back to them is closed, and they and they are sort of forced to reckon with this um, world that's changing and see it through American eyes and kind of navigate this um, brave new world as Americans. And um, the reason they can't go back is not does not entirely have to do with um, with Soviet machinations. It also has to do with this relationship that Russia and America have kind of this deal that they've brokered that these people basically are sacrificed to this deal and um, on one hand you know I, it's understandable that someone like FDR did not want to rock the boat when he needed um, Stalin as a strategic ally against um, fascism right the way that we're talking about terrorism right now that you know when 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 um, Trump says well If they're going to spend millions of dollars um, bombing ISIS, I have no problem with that. Um, The other thing is, I think just as then, there was actually kind of a more genuine admiration that the two men had for for each other. And I like I mean, we're talking about a world where a lot of the, the history that we know now wasn't necessarily written about, or if it was written about, like the fact that they're starving their people was just called fake news back in the 30s. But I think there was the project of lifting up your people, right? Like our people, the the people were in poverty in both nations, and you had to kind of have a strong uh, arm to lift them up. And both countries were engaging in this huge social engineering project. And I think they, like, I think Abdera kind of admired Stalin for that, and vice versa. And I think it's the same sort of admiration that we're seeing today I you know so it's not I guess none of it was that weird to me having having
3: I don't think it's weird I just uh worry about the kinds of things that Trump admires in Putin are not the same ones that you're talking about that FDR admired in Stalin. I mean, I think he likes him for his sort of anti-democratic tendencies, for the way that he is not really supportive of a free press, you know, the way that he's willing to use uh, uh, racial animosity to sort of, you know, consolidate rule. I mean, all those things, uh, you know, are, are at play and seem to be, to me, really negative. Well, I won't
4: argue with that. I I think um, at this point, you know, Russia's attempt to um, affect, you know, uh, our election isn't disputed, but I nonetheless feel like um, our attempt to try to delegitimize an unpopular president by saying that Russia kind of caused him to um, triumph, to me that that's sort of the other side of the conspiracy thinking coin. Even if they did all those things, like nobody Nobody forced people to go into the voting booths and vote the way they did. I mean, that—that's on us. Like, if we want to reckon with our choices, then we have to reckon with our choices. But when I when this attempt to sort of delegitimize the other side, you know, never before in our history have we had so much to oppress, sort of dedicated to things that were not necessarily unfactual, but like um, pseudo-factual or unknowns, and. Like, that does remind me, in a way, of Russia. I mean, conspiracy thinking basically takes takes the place of actual political discourse over there. I mean, people just love um, their conspiracy theories. And I think... There's a number of reasons for that. But people really pride themselves on the sophistication of their cynicism over there. Like, you're not a sucker <laughs> if you believe in nothing, right? And, um, I'm working
3: so hard on my cynicism. Now I feel bad.
4: Well, no, it's like you have uh, – well, so, so it's funny. It's like so, so, so part of the – I was living in Russia in 2008, and a lot of what's in the novel kind of came um, – Came wholesale out of the mouths of um, just people I talked to, and um, the one kind of conversation that you always end up having when you've drank enough is, "Well, everything, you know, yes." you know, yes, we're a Potemkin village, but so are you, you know, you don't actually have a pre- free press, it's a joke, you, your, your judges are all appointed, I mean, they kind of go, and they, you know, you have this imitation cheese democracy, just like Russia's, so I had this scene where basically someone's at this, uh, the, the, the son of the main character who comes back to Russia to figure out kind of what happened to her to get his son out of the country, he's at this, um, business banquet, and his, um, the, 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 the businessmen he's working with are kind of ribbing him about this and you know they're like oh 9 11. you know my, my real question is what happened to the other planes because you know there were seven of them and then what really surprised me but i put it in anyway was um they didn't seem to spare putin from this their conspiracy theorizing and this is people who work for basically a sta- state-backed company like so when um, my friend, who told me the story, said, well, you know, what about um, the fact that you guys bombed those apartment buildings so you could bring your troops back into Chechnya? He's like, well, of course we did it. You know, he's, <laughs> the guy's basically accusing his own president of being a terrorist. And this is a Putin patriot. So, like, what was going on? Like, I couldn't figure it out. It occurred to me that this wasn't. This kind of cynicism that I saw there wasn't just a byproduct of of having information that's not reliable. I actually think it's a sort of cynicism by design um, that, you know, if you have no faith in any institution that can, say, say stop stop the FSB bombing a building, then what you're saying is, you know, only one person, which is the person at the top, is in charge. But for those people who are kind of proud of the fact that they believe in nothing, um, even even if they say oh yeah you know we orchestrated our own um an act of terror in order to enter a war it still actually says that Putin's the only one in charge like and at the same time you don't sound like you're a sucker so it's it's funny it's a cynicism that kind of serves the state um and I I thought about that and I thought about how here there was something similar happening that if you you know um if one side is saying, "Oh no, there's a deep state that's preventing," and there's this deep state that's, um, you know, undermining the president and trying to topple our own government, or if you're even saying, "Hey, the Russians put Trump in power," you're sort of saying a variation on that. That you know, you your cynicism is actually un, um, underwriting your own form of patriotism. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. that makes perfect sense. It, I mean,
5: it sounds from a certain point of view. I mean it sounds it sounds like some sri lankans i know um i mean i, I don't think i can s- claim that i have a have a pulse on the like a really broad section of the community but there're certainly people who right i mean there's a there's a certain the idea that you don't believe yeah the idea that you don't believe in anything and therefore you're not a sucker um the way that that can actually kind of lead to a a kind of stagnant view of politics um
2: right like, and also that, what you're
5: saying about yeah like people. the Yeah, exactly. And, like, also the decay of certain institutions of the state that ought to be operating as checks on justice, like, whether it's the judiciary or, I think going back to what you said earlier about us having to be accountable for our own votes, like, I think in the case of the United States, like, the really clear decline of public education. Well, it's a significant Republican project to defund education, at least in my state.
2: Exactly.
5: Exactly. And I think that, like, I, I don't think I'm as surprised as other people that Trump won. And from a certain point of view, like, I guess, I don't know, I'm, I feel like sort of already past that surprise. Yeah, right. Um, We're a long which way I in. I think, <laughs> yeah, and which I think I associate, I think I associate that lack of surprise also with, like, communities of color that I'm in touch with where people are sort of, like, come on, this was here all along, or... Um, Sort of, I mean, even, you know, we did an episode on the Weinstein allegations, and then there's this kind of burst of surprise, um, often from men who are kind of like, I didn't know, I didn't know that all of this was going on, and women who are sort of like, of course it was going on all along. There's this part in the Patriots where Elias Shah al claims that his hero is Ralph Ellison. The Invisible Man is a cipher. He claims he lives in a basement full of light bulbs, siphoning off electricity from the monopolized energy company the utility company is unaware of his existence as if the fraudulent state whose authority he does not recognize, like the invisible Negro, I choose to have no existence in the eyes of our illegitimate state, which strikes me as like, basically exactly what you're saying.
4: So there's plenty of people like that, and I think in Russia there's actually a term for them, which would be internal emigre, that um, you know, you you kind of drop out of the public sphere, and you lead a rich um, interior, interior life, which, uh, I mean, one thing that russian immigrants have often bemoaned as they've immigrated is that the interior life of people in their new country is just not as rich and they're and it's there's they have a point but i think people develop that often can develop that um to compensate for the fact that they don't feel like they can change much um you know in the public sphere and i i I, it actually makes me think of this quote from Elizabeth Gilbert, in, in, like in the like the sixth page of Eat, Pray, Love. And forgive me, guys, I do love my um, my Elizabeth Gilbert. But she was talking about like <laughs> why, why the Italians have the best meatballs. they <laughs> were like, well, you know, if you can't change your bureaucracy, at least you can make the best meatball in the world. Um, so I think of it as like the best meatball effect. So
5: after all this, I mean, you you may not have been surprised by Trump's election. Um, and the wall-to-wall coverage of the Russia story, but has it changed how you think about your own writing? Um, Has it changed how people react to you? It's a sort of different environment in which to be writing about the things that you are writing about.
4: I think the reason people did say, wow, a lot of this feels familiar, um, wasn't just because Russia was in the news. because A lot of the ideas that have always been there that I was trying to explore are suddenly... Under the spotlight, I think you can't help it as a writer in a modern age when you're looking, when you're trying to like grapple genuinely with a historical subject of um, thinking about projecting our own experience on it. And so, um, I like that. I mean, I I I, I like that. It's sort of a, this parallel universe where the the rules are slightly different, but you can get you get to think about your very current subjects.
5: Sana, it's so it's so great to have you on the show, especially because I'm remembering that you know a dozen years ago in grad school we were in a we were in a class on the Russians and it's wonderful yeah, to, it's easy. to have you on the show with us today. Thank you so much for
3: doing this.
4: Great talking to you, Sugi. Good talking to you, Witt. Good luck, guys, and um looking forward to hearing it.
3: Thanks a lot for Thanks. being on the podcast, Sana.
4: All right, talk soon. Bye.
5: Okay, I'm thrilled to say that our next guest is Charles Baxter. Charles Thanks so much for doing this and welcome to the show. And I can't wait to hear what you think about Russian writers.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be here.
5: So uh, last night I was on a train from Dresden to Berlin and I was traveling with a Russian-American friend of mine, um, Aglaya Glabova, who is at the American Academy with me. and. By coincidence, we got into a section with some Russian travelers and started playing cards with them. So I was telling them about the podcast. And when I told them that Americans read and love Russian classics, um, one of them in particular said that she was astonished that she's Russians don't really read or love American writers in what she thought was a comparable way. And she was surprised that given what was going on in the news that Russian literature held this place in the American imagination. She wanted to know why.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, this is obviously a really complicated question. And when I was talking to a friend about it last night, one of the things she said was, uh, how do you talk about soul? S-O-U-L. And, you know, I think one of the things that Americans love about Russian writers, particularly Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, is that they're so good at describing interior, emotional, and spiritual and psychic states and conditions. And I think American writers used to be, I don't know if there's so much that way now, but they used to be shy about that. And um, the Russians are not.
3: And you also write about Chekhov a lot in *Burning Down the House*. I wondered if you could just read a passage uh, from that book for us.
1: Okay, sure. Uh, this is from yeah, this is from *Burning Down the House*, and it's from um, an essay in that book about Uncle Vanya. We can call it, in honor of one of its first diagnosticians, the Chekhov problem, which goes something like this: What does one do? do actively with one's honest revulsion and disgust with the cruelties, lies, and deceptions of middle-class life. Chekhov's response to this challenge, and this is a gross oversimplification, is to show that hidden under the outward mimes of character, there lies the substance of real character, a kind of essence Something genuine, sooner or later, will show itself. All we need to do is wait, observe, and hold on to those moments whenever they arrive. In this way, weariness and cynicism are kept at arm's length. Because no character can be wholly co-opted by any system, some particle of the genuine will emerge at some point.
5: Thanks so much, Charlie. I think in reading Burning Down the House, which is this craft classic, um, now as I think about how to write fiction in the face of a changing political climate, passages like this read differently to me. I mean, they're about morality and ideas and their intersection with craft. And I can't help but um, read that last bit about no character can be wholly co-opted by any system and think, do I still believe that?
1: Yeah, uh, I wonder about that, too. Um, there's a, an interesting story of Chekhov's called In the Ravine. It's not one that automatically gets taught the way the lady and the pet dog does. Um, and in that story there is a, a, a kind of catastrophic ecological disaster occurring to a small rushing town. And um, a character in that story who is so possessed by greed that she... Um, she and there's a sense in which there's no genuine self there. Uh, all she is is a personification of greed. And I, I once tried to talk about that story uh, at a small southern college where the students were very conservative, and they hated the story. They didn't like the news that it brought, and they said it was very unchekhovian. chekhovian <laughs> How interesting. And, and I said, I, uh, you must be kidding. Chekhov wrote it. No, no, it's not like his work at all, they said. I'm, they, and, and one of the students in class said to me, unless the uh, st- the story was signed by Chekhov, I wouldn't have believed it, that he did it. So what did they think a Chekhov story was supposed to be? I think they thought it was supposed to be a kind of slightly gray-colored account of... Middle class life lived with um, great subtlety. I, I don't think they were expecting uh, a, a story in which the forces of um, competition, money, uh, and commerce had been brought into play. And you know, I told them that Chekhov wrote a nonfiction account of the island of the prison camp on the island of socoline yeah and they didn't want to believe me about that either (laughs) it's 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 just not the image that a lot of americans have of Chekhov. this other side of him so you think
3: what makes people comfortable about him i mean in some places i don't think that writers teach him for this reason but maybe other readers are comfortable with him because they Recognize middle class life in in his stories. I mean, for me, one of the things that I liked about Russian writers is slightly different. It's not a class thing; it's a space thing. In other words, mm-hmm. if somebody from the Midwest, like in Turgenev, for instance, you know, in Fathers and Sons, like that, that, the idea of coming home from college to a sort of rural area where you know, or I, the isolation and separation from the capitals, which is also present in Chekhov's stories, sometimes, really was meaningful to me. It felt like the right. one that
1: I'd come out of. Right. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about Chekhov's stories is that in in many of those tales, uh, the and, and in the plays, too, particularly, characters have been given almost everything that, at least in America, you would assume would make them happy. They have... An adequate income. Uh, they're they're reasonably civilized. They have all of the features of life that we believe should uh, create uh, contentment, and yet they're not happy, and they. Uh, are often articulate about why they're not happy, and you know, Chekhov is very smart about what happens to people who have uh, too much leisure time, and and not <laughs> enough of a sense. <laughs> too much leisure time and not enough of a sense of what their lives should actually contain. Um, they they don't feel a sense of mission. And they don't know what they should be doing with their lives. I think that resonates with a lot of Americans. There's a Twitter account called, I think it's
5: called Guy in Your MFA. And it sort of <laughs> tweets cliches about MFA programs. And, and some of them are sort of things like, um, you know, quiet it's sort of malaise, I guess, is the word that um, yeah. people often invoke. Jesus, and a lot of the tweets represent that. And it's funny to to I hadn't really thought about it in terms of 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 Chekhov as being a source of that. But I mean, of course, it is. I, I guess the ter- the word that I just use is different.
1: The, the the other thing about Chekhov that has always struck me is that, and this is a this is something that our students in the MFA programs uh, are slow to learn how to do because it's so hard, it's so complicated, uh, is how to compound emotions so that any particular character is feeling two or three different emotions, some of them contradictory emotions at the same time. Uh, Uncle Vanya is full of that, and so are a number of, of the stories. Uh, but but yes, you know I I, I think uh, American life has this feature that many of us are lucky and many of us have um, maybe not so much anymore. Uh, but at one time we we had all of the sufficient features that a good life was supposed to contain and. And yet, um, nobody was happy. I mean, there's a the whole subspecies of American literature in the 1950s that was all about this. Richard Yates and John Cheever, right. just to name two, were 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 great writers on this particular subject.
3: Maybe we're kind of moving out of our Chekhov period and into more of our Dostoevsky
1: period. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah, exa- exactly. Exactly right. People are going to think exactly right.
5: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I was sitting on this train, um, playing cards, losing, losing at cards, actually losing specifically at this game called Dixit to, um, these Russian friends and, and my Russian speaking friend who was with me and they were talking about, um, what they read when they were, when they were kids or when they were in school about America. And I was telling them what I had, I had read, you know, and Americans read, really read classic Russian literature. We love Master and Margarita. We love Chekhov, um, Anna Karenina, War and Peace, the Brothers Karamazov, which I, I think I remember, I think I read that in in, in high school AP English. And these um, friends who were educated in Russia, were racking their brains to think of which Americans they'd read. They were working pretty hard and the range was fairly narrow. So, um, you know, one of them mentioned Steinbeck because, quote unquote, America sucks too. Um, And, you know, she mentioned that Lenin died listening to his wife read Jack London. And I asked her, you know, why why would Jack London be appealing specifically to Lenin? She was sort of like, well, you know, I think my guess is that, you know, nature and it's cold and rough out there and we have sympathy for that. So Jack London... They didn't seem to necessarily know um, that they had such a hold on um, American readers and American education about literature.
1: Right. Well, you know, I can't really speak for the Russians, but if I were forced to come up with a comment about why this is true, I think that what I would say is that for Russians, the experience of the revolution the years under Stalin, the great terror, and then World War II, and uh, the years under Khrushchev, and the gradual falling away of the great socialist experiment. All of this was historically so traumatic for them that i you know if i had been a russian during that period i would be completely absorbed with that passage of historical forces and and looking at american literature if i had lived through that or i had that as part of my historical background i would just think you know american literature has nothing to do with me it has mm-hmm. it's it's almost as if the world of of American literature is science fiction, even when it's being realistic. Uh, <laughs> uh, science fiction to Russians. Although I will tell you this story that that when Gorbachev was still a premier of the last premier of the Soviet Union, he came to Saint Paul, Minnesota. And one of the things he wanted was a first edition of Sinclair Lewis's Main Street, ah. which he had read in Russian as a boy. And so, you know, some of the I think that some of the American village novelists and short story writers like Sherwood Anderson, Sinclair Lewis um, were widely read and uh, in, in the Soviet Union and and, you know. Americans Americans probably read more Russians than the Russians read Americans everybody everybody read uh Nabokov uh I mean if you consider him Russian which I think we have to but the you know the Russian writer everybody's reading now is Svetlana Alexievich who's essentially a non-fiction writer yeah
3: I mean, I, you know, I just want to emphasize how I just remember, I mean, The Brothers Karamazov was the first book that I ever read that, like, questioned the religious beliefs that I had been brought up in, in an interesting way. You know, like, I I went to a Russian writer for that. And it it was only because I found it. It was just on my parents' shelf. You know, I took it down. I read it. But it immediately spoke to me. Um, Right. But I realized that I don't read I, this is maybe it's just me, and, and, but I don't read contemporary Russian writers. You know what, what's hap- Do you know anything about what's happening in terms of contemporary Russian fiction?
1: I have a friend who um, uh, does read Russian and who uh, gave me the names of a number of Russian writers, contemporary Russian writers, and whose work uh, I. Checked on this, there was a guy Valentin Rasputin, who I actually met at a literary conference. A very name. unpleasant. Very yeah, very unpleasant guy. A, a right winger, but he, um, interestingly, he's he's opposed to industrialization. Uh, he's uh-huh. a kind of madcap ecologist who is being driven crazy, or uh, was when I knew him uh, by the pollution of Lake Baikal. Um, uh, mm. and, and, but no, I mean, you the, the answer to your question is I really am not up on my, uh, contemporary Russian writers, except for Gary Steingart who writes in English.
5: Right. And you mentioned Svetlana Alexievich. Um, is it just because you they're it, not getting translated? Do you think Sugi? I mean, this is what I was wondering, I mean, right, because um, this was one of the things that struck me on the train talking to these folks is that you know, Americans read so little in translation as compared to other folks. And then um, like in other countries, there's so much in translation. I can't say that I was familiar with Svetlana Alekseevich's work before she won the Nobel. Um, but when we say like everybody is reading her, um, who do we mean? Like we're not, is she being taught in in literature classes um yeah i don't i don't know yeah. how much she's being read
1: yeah uh, you know it's a typical failing of a literary critic to think that everybody's reading the stuff i'm reading um <laughs> it, I, but i you know i think the reason that so many people in this country have been interested in her is that one of her books voices from chernobyl uh is about of course the catastrophe at chernobyl and the possible catastrophes produced by nuclear power and another uh one of her books is called zinky boys which is about the aftermath of the russian uh incursion into afghanistan and so of course that has relevance for us
5: yeah
3: I think we should also put a call out to our listeners if they have good suggestions, write them in on our Facebook page or on Twitter, and uh, we'll uh, talk about them in a a later
5: episode. As I was reading Burning Down the House um, and rereading and thinking about this episode, there's just a ton of references to Chekhov and to Tolstoy and to, you know, Russian writers. And yet, um, I don't know that I actually know what you think about reading through this lens of nation.
1: I don't know. It's a great question. And I'm not exactly sure how to answer it, except by saying that I think I first started reading Russian writers when I was in eighth or ninth grade. I think I read an abridged edition of of Crime and Punishment just because I liked the title. It's a great title. But I always felt much more at home reading Russian writers than I ever did reading you know, English novelists like Thackeray and Trollope, uh, or even Dickens, for that matter. I mean, the moodiness of Russian literature appealed to me immediately when I was an adolescent. And I you know if if you forced me into a corner and asked me, you know, one of the handful of my favorite novels, I would say, The Master and Margarita. So, you know, the the question of nationality, you know, it's a tricky one, but it, it also has to do with the way as readers we find our own homes. And I, I just always found myself feeling comfortable reading Turgenev and and. Chekhov and Dostoevsky, and even the even the poets Anna Akhmatova, uh, whose work I just loved. Uh, so I don't I, I don't know I, I think sometimes the the boundaries of national literature do melt down when you when you start reading, particularly as an adolescent.
3: I so felt that way. I mean, I so agree. I do remember the only way I could get through Crime and Punishment, though, was that uh, I listened to it on tape driving between Iowa City and Kansas City over a period of like (laughs) a year.
5: And you asked before about translation, Wit, and I just was thinking, um, Sana, who was on the first half of the podcast she and I took a class with ZZ Packer about, uh, that was Russian writers when we were in graduate school. And for like a full, for like a lot of the show, for a lot of the semester, um, I, who had never, I had maybe never read anything in translation before that didn't, didn't, hadn't really even thought about it. And I got the book out of the library and I got it the wrong translation. And it was a, I was having this completely joyless experience because I was reading a translation that was, I think, really bad.
1: Uh, one essay I was writing, I was really interested in the last speech that Sonia gives in Uncle Vanya. And
5: yeah, yeah, I was going to bring that up. It, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and, and it really makes a difference to have a friend who can read Russian and who can tell you exactly what the words, not only what they mean, but what they connote and uh, what the overtones of that speech um, are. Because it's a very complicated speech, and it's not at all clear that Sonia, believes what she's saying or she's just saying these things to reassure her uncle and then maybe to reassure herself um so yeah and and russians are always telling you that some of their writers such as platonov are more or less untranslatable that you you just aren't going to get it uh if if you can't read russian uh you're not going to get what his what his prose does um, I, I always feel at a bit of a disadvantage reading uh, particularly Dostoevsky in translation because Russians will say well it's very funny and I don't get that <laughs>
3: <laughs> that was the only way I got the funny part of, of Crime and Punishment was listening to it the guy who read it made it funny and I had not yeah.
5: understood that um, I never yeah. got it from reading it right neither had I Well, this makes me want to go get audiobooks and also study some Russian. Um, (laughs) Charlie, thanks so much for being on the show. It's a real treat. And uh, we recommend Charlie Baxter's fiction to you, of course. And also we've been referencing Burning Down the House, uh, which is his collection of craft essays, which is full of Chekhovian examples and citations and lots of references to terrific short stories.
1: Charlie, thanks so much. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for being on the show.
4: Hi, I'm J.J. Cantrell, the new host of In the Stacks. This week, we're talking to writer and bookstore owner Ashley Warlick. Ashley's co-owner of M. Judson Bookstore in downtown Greenville, South Carolina. Her latest book is The Arrangement, an absolutely beautiful historical novel about food writer M.F.K. Fisher. Ashley, what novels can you recommend to us this week that would give us a better insight into our topic?
2: The first book that I thought of when we started talking about this was Colin McCann's Dancer, which is a book that came out oh probably five or six years ago that is based on the life of the Russian um, ballet dancer, Rudolf Nureyev, and it's just got this gorgeous structure to it. It's told in a kaleidoscope of voices from Nureyev himself, you know, through the most insignificant passing characters that might have a a point of view on his life. But in the meantime, this picture of mid-century Russia uh, really comes to life in a way that reminds you of Tolstoy, um, but in a completely contemporary um, feeling novel. Obviously, I thought of the Gary Scheingart novel, Super Sad True Love Story, Russian debutante handbook, which, while giving a picture of Russia, also give a picture of a Russian immigrant story to this country uh, and are often funny and bizarre and complex In the way that uh, you know their the sort of Russian ancestral roots might be. Um, As a bookseller, in the last year or so, I've seen some pretty interesting turns towards this subject matter as well. So um, about a year ago, Penguin came out with a beautiful new edition of The Master and Margarita, which is a book um, you know that brings this Russian classic to a new audience. And if you haven't read that book, It's really funny, which is something that I don't know that we necessarily associate with our our picture of Russian literature. Um, it's bizarre too. I mean, magical realism that's in the master Margarita really, um, it's got nothing on what, you know, what Marquez was doing. Uh, later. Um, but even just like a couple weeks ago, Janet Fitch came out with a historical novel called The Revolution of Marina M. And of course, Janet Fitch is pretty famous for her, you know, Oprah book club. You know, so she's really bringing this picture of a young woman um, involved in the Russian Revolution and that part of Russian history, bringing that to a a very different audience than your typical readers of Chekhov and Tolstoy and, and the brothers Karamazov.
5: Ashley, these are great recommendations. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's episode of the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Whitney and I will be back with a new episode in two weeks. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us in iTunes, on Apple Podcasts, through Stitcher, through Audioboom, or at the Literary Hub website. So I'm also going to remind you that you can like our Facebook page at FNF Pod or leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at FNF Talk. That will make it easier for other listeners to find us and also for you to tell us which Russians you're reading.